0: Hi there, my name is Alexandra Hella-Nicholas. I'm a film critic, author and recovering academic from Melbourne, Australia. And I'm here to talk about Paddy Darbinville's Billitus. And with me is film scholar Josh Nelson. Hi, Josh Nelson. Are you going to talk to me about Paddy Darbinville's Billitus?
1: You see, I was going to introduce this film as Catherine Briar's Billitus. I think Paddy Darbinville's Billitus is fine too. We can flip a coin. <laughs>
0: People can't see my eyebrows wiggle because uh, an audio commentary, as is in the name, is a, an audio form. But uh, my eyebrows are wiggling. Can you hear them? I can't. No.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure if you can hear this, but I'm actually using a soft focus filter on my voice for this commentary, <laughs> as befitting this film.
0: The Josh Nelson haze. Bit of Vaseline. on. <laughs> um, we are calling this Paddy Garvinville's Billetest because, well, it is. To start with, I think that this film would not be what it is without the extraordinary performance of the, uh, rest assured, 25-year-old, I think, Patty Darbinville. She's not the age that of the character that she plays in this film. I mean, she's a knockout. She's incredible in this film, and I do think that she makes it what it is.
1: We will talk a fair bit about Patti Darbinville in this commentary, because as you rightfully put it, this is her film, and it is quite a challenging role, and she really impresses you know, the strength of this film lies as much with her performance as it does with the look and the style of the film. And yes, we will get on to the somewhat unavoidable topic of David Hamilton very shortly, but it is worth pointing out that this is not your typical softcore lead role. The narrative doesn't exactly follow the traditional arc of many of those soft-core or soft focus features that were coming out around this time. And look, this is probably something I should say from the outset that trying to position this film, or films like it, into a neat category like soft core or soft focus, or soft focus core, or erotica, sexploitation, a a nudie cutie, is a really difficult task. And look, I don't want to derail the commentary by getting too deep into those very slippery definitions of where this film sits in terms of genre or sub-genres within that. Other than to say that when we talk about, let's call it adult cinema, that context is really key. And this period of the mid to late 1970's is a really interesting time for both European and American filmmaking, for these types of films. And what fascinates me about Billitus is the way in which it feels like a film that's both in step with what's going on in these broader trends at the time, but also the ways in which it runs against the grain of many of those other films that were being released at the time. And certainly that's one of the many tensions within this film that I'm sure we'll touch on and explore in more depth as we go along throughout the commentary.
0: I think you just invented a subgenre, which is soft focus core. I love that. <laughs> Trademark. I'm, I'm at home to that. I pack a bong for soft focus core. I mean, look, Hamilton, you know, we've sort of been... <laughs> people may have noticed with my um, inaudible eyebrow wiggling that we've been <laughs> avoiding or tippy-toeing around David Hamilton a bit... Um, which I'm sure that uh, if you're listening to a commentary on this film, you no doubt perhaps know the reasons why we want to approach this with some delicacy. Now, clearly we can't talk about this film uh, without referring to its director. It's very, very famous and very, very you know notorious director who was a very famous photographer. We'll talk more about his photography, which is, of course, really fetishized amongst other things in those, uh, you know, that pre credit scene and then the credits themselves. He wasn't the cinematographer for this film, but we'll talk about that more shortly. But certainly he took the still photos and there was a photo book. David Hamilton is a quote-unquote alleged, we're legally bound to say that, an alleged rapist and the circumstances of this relate to an assault that was documented by a French journalist called Flavie Flamon in her book La Constellation in 2016, where she talks, she doesn't mention the name of the alleged uh, perpetrator alleged i'll just keep saying that because we want to be legal and nice and clean here she doesn't mention hamilton's name in the book but i believe doing press for the book or certainly in interviews around that time she did name him afterwards as the man who allegedly raped her when she was 13. on the back of her going public i think there was was a six women total or another six women came forward forgive me if i'm short on my numbers anyway more than one I would say is bad I don't mean to diminish any woman's story there by getting the numbers incorrect but yeah I'm just gonna say more than zero is a bad number for rape allegations of 13 year olds I think that's a fair comment and of course these allegations are often discussed in very close relation to Hamilton's death he died by suicide only weeks after I think a fortnight after Flamon really went public with this, and he insisted that they were untrue, that these allegations were untrue. But yes, he died by suicide in his early 80s, in very, very close proximity to these allegations. The reasons for that have never been made public, if anybody knows them, um, and you can perhaps draw your own conclusions about why he may have done that. I don't know how I handled that, but I don't know if there's a good way to handle it because this is a 13-year-old girl. and. It's a horrible story, it's a really sad, ugly story, if the allegations are true.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is a difficult subject matter, but it's unavoidable subject matter, and it is important context to this film and to Hamilton's broader career. You can't not acknowledge these allegations, as we need to keep putting it. But at the time of Hamilton's death, as you mentioned, he died by suicide. Flavie Flamont's editor released a statement on her behalf, and I think this is worth reading. It read, Naturally, we feel horrified and at the same time really disgusted that there was not enough time for justice to run its course. The horror of this news will never erase the sleepless nights. Now at the time that these allegations surfaced in 2016, the French statute of limitations for rape charges was 20 years and 10 years for sexual abuse which meant that even if Hamilton had lived, he would not have had to face court because of those legal limitations. So we're talking about allegations that have never been tried in court, and obviously in the wake of his death will not be tried in court. But if there's a silver lining to any of this, don't want to sound flippant in saying that, but in the wake of Flamont's allegations and those of her co-accusers and the death of Hamilton, there was this push for a review of the statute of limitations. And the then French Minister for Children's and Women's Rights approached Flamont to be part of that legal push for change. Now, as it stands at the time of recording, there has actually been legislative change. And in 2021, Flamont went on record in relation to another high-profile sexual abuse scandal that occurred in France and made the following statement, quote, The extension of the limitation periods has made it possible to file a complaint 30 years after coming of age in the event of sexual assault of a minor under the age of 15, but this is not retroactive. We still have to progress, perhaps towards imprescriptibility. From a philosophical point of view, I am for this, and I hope that this will be applicable at the legislative level." End quote. So it does seem as if change is perhaps slowly taking place. But the other thing that I think we should mention here, and this is actually something that you brought to my attention because it had flown completely under my radar, is that Flavie Flamand's book, La Consolation, has already been adapted into a tally movie, released under that same title in 2017. So this is just a year after the book and the allegations and Hamilton's suicide had all taken place. And the character of the photographer within that tally movie is named quite explicitly as David Hamilton. So there was no attempt to disguise the identities of those involved within that scenario. And I think when that tally movie first aired on French TV, it was actually followed by a debate about sexual abuse. And Flamont appeared on TV in that context. So this was not an insignificant case within France, especially given the proximity of the film's release to the book and the allegations against Hamilton, and obviously his subsequent death.
0: It's a really interesting timing, too. Um, if we take a step back, actually, before I say that, I should point out that I'm I'm repeatedly using the word allegations. I'm hoping that my personal status, and and certainly I'm comfortable here speaking for you, Josh. Uh, that that our <laughs> that our views on these quote unquote allegations are implicitly actually explicitly made clear here these are allegations as josh said they haven't been tried in court but i'm pretty clear on who i believe i don't have a lot of doubt here uh regarding the validity of flavie Flamon's allegations uh i think that that's probably worth putting on record absolutely the tv movie of flavie Flamon's book came out in 2017 in english-speaking countries especially the us and the uk and to some degree in australia where i am this all falls under what we call the rebooting of Tarana Burke's Me Too movement, which really reached um, a, a much bigger, you know, headline audience on the back of the Weinstein allegations in late 2017. Things in France, you know, uh, Claire Denis is on the record about this saying, look, this is not something that people really outside of these countries think about, you know, and, and, there's been a lot of discussion in France about issues that we would culturally refer to as falling under that Me Too umbrella but in France it's a, it's a different story it's you know it's sort of played out in a very different way and I do think that the Flavie Flamon uh, story is is probably just as critical in that discourse I, like I think that um, even though it hasn't really fallen into into especially American you know that really dominant Me Too story there are different stories that are happening elsewhere in the world and there are places where that conversation isn't happening, which I think is also importantly part of the story, which is what Claire Denise pointed out. You know, people aren't talking about this in in Africa. You know, they've got other things to do. We could talk a lot about just Flavie Flamon and these issues, but we both really... I mean, this is an objectively beautiful film and, you know, Bernard Deliancoy is somebody that we'll come back to talk about a lot, uh, the, the cinematographer for this film. But you know, it's, it's it's clearly a David Hamilton film. You know, there's no doubt there. It looks like, you know, it's got the Hamilton blur, you know, the famous Hamilton blur. No, he didn't use Vaseline on the lens, but that's just for the photography nerds amongst you. I mean, it will come back, I think, to, you know, it's hard to talk about him and the the gaze, if you want to call it that, and not talk about this stuff about Hamilton, so we certainly will come back to that. But I do really want to amplify that, yes, this is objectively a really beautiful film. And as we said at the very start, this is a Patti Darbinville film. She's incredible. I love her. I love this film because I love Patty Darbinville. She
1: really is this beacon of light within this film. And really, if you come away from this commentary with nothing other than a newfound appreciation for Patti Darbinville, then I can happily say that we've done our job in that regard. But it is interesting revisiting this film, and all of Hamilton's later films too, I would add, in light of the allegations that emerged in 2016. Though it's fair to say that there were already questions being asked about Hamilton's work long before 2016. So this isn't necessarily new controversy or new scandal around this figure. There were a number of issues and controversies around his work that have this very long history, independent of the spectre cast by these more recent rape and sexual assault and sexual abuse allegations against the filmmaker and photographer. But I do think now, looking back at this film from a contemporary vantage point, it is almost impossible to view his work without those allegations coming into play. Even if you attempt to contextualise these films within their own historical and artistic context. Because that spectre really hovers around these works now And for me, there's almost no getting around the fact that Hamilton clearly had a fascination with young girls, or teenagers, and sexuality. You know, Regardless of your stance about the allegations made against him, I think we can pretty much state that as fact. That doesn't seem to be in dispute. And yes, obviously these types of representations have a very lengthy artistic history, and I'm sure we'll get into some of the sources of inspiration for Hamilton's work a little bit later on but he certainly makes no attempt to hide that fact within his work, his interest in these types of figures and these types of themes and issues. And if you look at Laura, the film he made after Billitus, the focus is very much on the relationship between an artist and a young woman, played in that film by Dawn Dunlap, who would have only been around 15 years of age at the time that film was made. And basically the plot of Laura, for those who haven't seen it, revolves around a sculptor, who reunites with a former lover and upon meeting this former partner's younger daughter, the character of Laura, he decides that he wants her to model for him so he can create a work based on this young woman. Now this is where it becomes a little difficult to separate the art from the artist in light of what we know now because in the narrative the mother, who is now both a little bit jealous and also a little bit concerned about her artist friends seeming affection towards her younger daughter agrees to take nude photographs of her daughter to prevent her having to model live in front of this sculptor and there's a scene in the film where the mother is giving him these nude photographs of her daughter and noticing his very excited response to these images and she says quote you're quite taken with her to which he replies I was quite taken with you when you were that age yikes <laughs> Yeah, right. Now, a line of dialogue like that feels like it probably would have been taboo, even without all the extra baggage of all these other issues and allegations that we've been talking about. So in a way, I don't think there's any coming back from that, from what we know now. And obviously, you know, everything is historically contextual. And we can talk about how what counts as acceptable when it comes to representations of youth sexuality have no doubt shifted in recent years, but Hamilton's fascination with young female sexuality is a recurrent trope not only within his films, but within his photographic work also. And given Dawn Dunlop's age in Laura, as opposed to this film when we have a much older actress in that lead role, I think it's very understandable if that makes for
0: some uncomfortable viewing. I mean, as I've, I think made really clear, like, Darwinville owns this film. I just think she puts in such a strong performance. And I think if you're, you know, if you don't, if you're not familiar with who she is or the fact that she was 25 when she did this, I think she was only a year younger than Mona Christensen, who plays the older married woman, who was, in fact, briefly, I believe, David Hamilton's wife. This film is a lot more comfortable to watch when you know how old Darbinville was, I think, in this film. She's a 25-year-old woman playing very convincingly a younger girl. I mean, if you didn't know that she was 25, you would certainly think, yes, sure, she's 16. And there's obviously, you know, things there to talk about. (laughs) We've got no lack of stuff to talk about with this film. But, yeah, there is, uh, in retrospect, certainly, or especially, uh, a comfort, I think, to knowing that she was 25. Um, You know, she was well into her, her young womanhood at that point. But yes, as you say, Josh, I mean, that you know, this was, you know, it wasn't just the end of his life that Hamilton had met with controversy. And in fact, that controversy really marked his career throughout, especially, you know, his books were so big. You know, I think there was a big brouhaha with one of them, um, there a Christian group lobbied to get them banned from being sold in like Barnes and Noble, you know, like, you know, the, and I think that the bookshop ended up agreeing to move them to the top shelf so that they couldn't be seen by, by little kids, you know, so top, top shelf as opposed to Top Shop liquor, which I think I will need because I'm going to keep talking about David Hamilton on this subject.
1: This might springboard into questions about art versus pornography that we might get into later on within the commentary, but I think it's worth pointing out, as you've just alluded to there, that Hamilton's books have been caught up in debates in recent decades over what constitutes child pornography. There was a couple of cases in the UK, one in 2005 and the other in 2000. Ten, in which a man was actually convicted of a level one child pornography offence for purchasing and owning four books that were deemed to be child pornography. Now one of those was from David Hamilton, another was from the photographer Sally Mann. And that conviction was ultimately overturned on appeal in 2011 with the judge remarking that quote if the crown prosecution wishes to test whether the pictures in these books are indecent the right way to deal with the matter is by way of prosecuting the publisher or the retailer and not the individual purchaser end quote so again we come to these questions about time and context and shifting social attitudes I don't want to give the impression that the only way to understand a film like this is through a contemporary lens. There's context involved here and where this film falls in terms of the history of adult cinema I think is really fascinating for me because it represents this brief moment in history where more explicitly sexual content was crossing over into the mainstream. So you had this burgeoning adult cinema industry but of course that was fairly short-lived. You know, this era of the porno chic was effectively over by the early 1980s. And David Hamilton's five feature films, of which this is obviously the first, were all produced towards the end of that period, between 1977 with Billitus and then the two films that I think were produced in 1983, First Desires and Summer at St. Tropez. And Hamilton doesn't make a film again after that. That's something important to keep in mind within this film's historical context.
0: This question of time is really central, I think, to talking about David Hamilton and to talking about Bilitis. We're going to see that we're constantly moving back and forth. So it's impossible for us to talk about this film now in retrospect without knowing the allegations that we know. That is just inescapable. You can't research David Hamilton. I mean, just his obits. I mean, if you, if you want to sort of see how much his quote unquote legacy has been and I don't use that in the same way as quote-unquote allegations. I use that in a different context. I mean, those allegations really marked that that legacy in the way that he was remembered. I mean, the, uh, yeah, he died late 2016. And I'll just run through a whole bunch of the, of the headlines for his obits. You know, the BBC was UK photographer David Hamilton dies at 83 amid rape scandal. Artnet was controversial photographer David Hamilton dies amid rape allegations. Stuff in New, New Zealand, they ran with probably the most explicitly aggressive Heading: They used a quote from one of his accusers and it's British photographer David Hamilton died, quote, a coward who raped me and others. I mean, that's an obit. Spiegel in Germany, they really nailed it on the obit front. They wrote an article called The Man and the Girls and um, the sort of little sub heading or introduction to that is kitschy pictures of young girls made from world famous. In the past month, some of his models have made rape allegations against David Hamilton. Now the Britain is dead. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Even the Washington Post that don't mention the rape allegations, their obit is David Hamilton, photographer, celebrated as artist and condemned as pornographer, dies at 83. So this stuff was always there. Like, it, it goes, you know, as you say, you know, these art versus porn debates, you know, it, uh, Hamilton is often talked about prior to his death and those allegations. He was often talked about in relation to the photographer Sally Mann, who we'll talk about more shortly. I don't think you can really talk about one without talking about the other, unfortunately. But even going back to those child pornography possession cases in the early 2000s, the British prosecutor called Hamilton's work that was found in possession of one of these men, quote unquote, simply indecent. And Hamilton before the allegations, so 2015, so um, Flavie Flamon went on the record in her book in 2016. So a year before that, Hamilton had pretty much gone underground, really. Like he sort of pulled back a lot after those child pornography cases came up. He really sort of slowly, you know, he was was getting old too, you know. But he did a rare interview uh, with a magazine called Gala and he said then, my work has nothing to do with the vulgarity of our current era. And I think that's such an important quote because it ties back to that idea of time that I was talking about, you know, this moving back and forth in time. And I think that that it's so crucial to how we talk about his work more broadly, but also this film specifically, you know, that, you know, we can't lose what we now know in retrospect, But this film itself kind of you know there's this ye older you know the whole the whole romanticism there's a nostalgia to his photography and that nostalgia is not just in the aesthetics and the style of his photography but also in this really quite quite explicitly fetishized vision of of girlhood you know there's this real nostalgia for that captured moment of youth so time i think you know he really nails it there, you know, that my work has nothing to do with the vulgarity of our current era. It's such a strange quote. It's like how do you define Yeah, it's 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 a complicated quote. I mean, this question of vulgarity Yeah, I mean and, and you know, I guess in a way the, the mainstreaming of, of this of his photography, of the photo books especially. But these these films, you know, this film especially was hugely well received. People were kind of fine with it. And again, they don't know what we know now. So, you know, perhaps it's less of a strange watch. But yes, this shift over time uh, in terms of how his work was received really is like a drumbeat throughout a lot of these obits. Emily Langer wrote in her obituary uh, for The Washington Post, quote, Nudity and purity, sensuality and innocence, grace and spontaneity. We made contradictions of them, Mr. Hamilton once told an interviewer. I try to harmonize them and that's my secret and the reason for my success hamilton writes other viewers did not see mr hamilton's output in the same idyllic light times film critic a.o scott described bilitus one of several movies that mr hamilton directed in the 70s and 80s as a work of quote gauzy arty breathlessness and an exemplar of this quote softcore quotation picture photography critic sarah boxer also writing in the times called the age of innocence and its images of bare-chested girls as the essence of icky and the author as someone who could be, quote, considered a dirty old man. What Langer doesn't note in that particular quote is that Boxer was writing 20 years after Scott. So there's 20 years separating those two quotes. And you can really see the difference in how Hamilton's work was perceived in that 20 years. There was just such a rapid change, a really radical change in how the representation of women and sexuality really Changed, You know, I mean, you you will have your own personal opinions on whether that was for the good. And God bless you with that. You know, you're welcome to that. But um, there's no doubt that that was a a period of really, really radical change. And that impacted not just Hamilton's work during the 80s, especially, but also the legacy and the memory of his work. You know, this quote from Sarah Boxer, the essence of icky. The Spiegel obit as well, um, again, really plays up this sort of change I guess in attitudes towards Hamilton's work it says shy eyes that look shyly into the camera plus soft focus and natural light this is how David Hamilton presented his models to the world and with them his feminine ideal he called them nymphs Vladimir Nabokov would have probably called them lolitas young girls who had hit puberty who preferred to be in front of the camera blondes and redheads who in his eyes matched his pastel photography best In the 70s, David Hamilton became famous with these pictures, which, with their soft-porn optics, didn't really want to scare anyone during the sexual revolution. Later, around the turn of the millennium, the number of voices accusing Hamilton no longer of kitsch and bad taste, but of latent pedophilia increased. One could certainly call him a dirty old man. So we have that return of that boxer quote here that, that really does permeate a lot of obituaries about David Hamilton. But again, we get that real shift, that real change, you know, and I, I really like that Spiegel obit because it points out the latent pedophilia and, of course, with the circumstances surrounding his death and the Flavi Flamon allegations that were so close to it. Yeah, latent pedophilia is a, is a curious phrase. That's a, that was originally in German, by the way. That's a um, translation, so it may not be a direct quote. But I mean, just the whole question of childhood, right? The quote that I keep coming back to um, is a Hamilton quote from 2000, and he says, there's always been a line and I never cross it. I never photograph children. To me, that's just an incredible thing to say. Well, we know that from Flavie Flamont that he did, but I think that it's his definition of childhood. You know, when he thinks of children, he thinks of, you know, maybe under 10. He doesn't consider the, the kind of prepubescent going into puberty girls, aged girls that he was working a lot with. They're not children to him, which I think is very revealing. His understanding of what childhood is and what in opposition must be womanhood. We see that again with Bilitis. You know, It's a 16-year-old girl played by a 25-year-old woman. It's like, yeah, dude, but you still wanted her to look 16. You still wanted us to think she was 16. So you know, we get into really interesting territory here, I think, in terms of, of representation and, and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, it's all seen through a pretty pretty mucky lens retrospectively knowing what we know about the allegations that have been made against the late David Hamilton.
1: Yeah context is really key here I know I keep using that phrase and that's not to discount the more recent allegations at all but I keep thinking about that quote of Hamilton's that you just mentioned there about the vulgarity of the current era and the way that so much of Hamilton's sources of artistic inspiration or influences on his visual style seem to hark back to these earlier artistic movements. There's an extraordinary piece on David Hamilton that was published in Freeze magazine in June of 2001, Frieze F-R-I-E-Z-E, which is entitled Sirens, that I'm going to quote sections of throughout this commentary because it's straight up one of the most insightful pieces of work on the artist. And I could happily just sit here and read the whole damn thing to be quite honest, but regrettably there's no attributed author to this piece so dear anonymous whoever you are out there perhaps you're listening uh, you have my deepest gratitude for your work here this was a really important work in the research for this film and this piece actually picks up on the sort of quote unquote hamilton signature style and links it to these sources of inspiration and this is important context i think so this author writes quote His signature style, romantic soft-focus images of young girls, is easily recognisable and now part of the history of visual culture. A typical Hamilton, in inverted commas, shows girls in transparent white summer dresses or embroidered nightgowns shot against the light so the clothes seem to be luminescent. Whiteness streams in through an open window or breaks through the treetops to illuminate a scene in which a teenage nymph displays a glimpse of her body. Usually she is not alone but in the company of a second girl, who resembles her like a double. The girls appear either to be lost in dreams, gazing into the distance in pre-Raphaelite poses, or touching, embracing and caressing each other. Mostly the photographs are set in the open air, on Mediterranean beaches or in forests or fields. Interior shots are staged in nostalgic country houses, decorated with flowers, enamel bathtubs, art nouveau mirrors, four poster beds, pastel-coloured gauze veils, velveteen drapery and ornamental fabrics. Another classic mise-en-scene is the winter garden, with indoor palm trees and pale rattan furniture. Hamilton himself confesses to being an admirer of the pictorialist tradition of 19th century photography. Out of this conviction, he has produced still lifes after Mirandi, Chardin and Caravaggio, and nudes after Beltus, Raphael and Degas. The photographs are made to emulate painting with the help of extreme soft focus or backlighting effects. Naturally, this aspiration to high art, as well as the strong presence of the decor, means that Hamilton's images appeal to camp taste. This is aestheticism out of control, a whole world transformed into a soft focus fantasy." End quote. That gives a really good sense of at least the artistic context of Hamilton's style, and where he certainly takes his cues from in terms of these depictions of female sexuality and nude art.
0: So Hamilton's name has become synonymous, I think, with a number of other artists and photographers who have similarly been drawn into debates about the representation of sexualised children uh, children and, and nudity, these kinds of things. Balthus, the, the Polish artist Balthus is really, really inescapable here. Um, very famous for his paintings of teenage girls in quite what have been understood and to my eye appear to be quite aggressively sexualised poses. I'll flag it for you now I won't go too into depth to this but there's a great article in the New York Times in 2017 called We Need to Talk About Balthus which talks about two women uh, Anna Zaccaro and Mia Merrill who drove a movement to request the Met Gallery in New York to remove the painting Therese Dreaming specifically and it's it's a really good piece do go and have a look at that if you want to check out more about Balthus but knowing, knowing the story behind them um, th- there's a quote from that article that I'll just flag especially which is just crazy stuff you know I mean, he died in 2001, so, you know, this is sort of still relatively recent history. But this quote says, A few years ago, the Gagosian Gallery in New York held a show of some of the Polaroids Baltus had taken at the end of his life of a young girl named Anna Wahil, who was usually semi-dressed when he photographed her. She sat for him one afternoon a week from the time she was eight until she was a teenager. After the sessions, they would watch the soap opera The Bold and the Beautiful. A German museum had cancelled an exhibition of the images previously, with a newspaper calling them documents of pedophilic greed. So Balthus is, yeah, clearly somebody that even if we can, I don't know if we can, but even if we try to separate Hamilton from his own life story and death story, Clearly, there's some overlap with Baltus here um, in terms of the debate, but more interestingly, I find the figure of Sally Mann, who's an American photographer. Now, she is really synonymous with him. If you go to, to Hamilton's wiki page, she's in the C or so list, as is uh, baltus and Roman Polanski. So you're starting to get a bit of a picture here, I think, of where um, David Hamilton fits in it all. I really like Sally Mann's work, and I feel very strongly that she's not meant to be in this list, but Sally Mann and David Hamilton are almost synonymous through so much literature. just and, and little, you know, kind of almost ambient things like this Wikipedia-C also is. So at the heart of the debates about Sally Mann's works, or the controversy about Sally Mann's works, is a book from 1992 called Immediate Family, where she took photos of her kids in just all their different states of life um, in their childhood. And she actually waited a while, she talked to the kids when they were a little older about what photos she could put in the books, Is I understand how the story went. People went insane. People went absolutely insane. She's a mother you know how could she photograph her children like this. The very conservative politician Pat Robertson called her immoral. I mean the child pornography beacon was just shot up big time. You know self-described children's protection groups were organizing book burnings and the whole thing with her wasn't just child pornography but it was also child abuse that these were her children and that that there was an abusive mother thing going on here. What I find really fascinating about this is that we had the same thing happen in Australia with a photographer called Polizina Papatreu. exactly the same thing. She took photos of her daughter Olympia. There was a series where they they, uh, restage a bunch of photographs that Lewis Carroll had taken of a young girl. And it's a mother and daughter collaborating, working on this together. And this was huge, like a huge scandal in Australia. Yeah, as recently as as 2008, where the late Papatreu's daughter in the photos, Olympia herself had to come out and say, actually, I'm fine, I'm, I'm on board with all of this. The Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd at the time, who was not in the Conservative Party, he was in the supposedly, you know, ostensibly more progressive political party here. He said that, quote unquote, he couldn't stand this kind of stuff. I mean, she was really demonised. So, yeah, it's really fascinating to me how we have people like Balthus and Hamilton on one hand, but then we have people like uh, Sally Mann and Polly Papatreyu on the other, and it's all sort of smooshed up now in the same kind of historical discourse. I think it's way more complicated than that. I mean, obviously, my biases are showing there, and particularly in terms of Mann and Polly but I don't think that it's a case of if you photograph new children, you are a pornographer. I do think that there is nuance here, but I can't, certainly with what we know about Hamilton, I I do struggle with his photography more broadly. I'm comforted in this film again by the fact that certainly Darbynville herself was mid-twenties.
1: In a way, that controversy around sexuality and nudity and art and pornography leads us to Catherine Briard, which I think is someone worth flagging here, and maybe we can come back to her in more detail later on in the commentary when we get stuck into these deeper questions about... Sexuality within the film, but one of the real strengths of Vilitus, and perhaps why of all of Hamilton's work I find this the most complex and certainly the most fascinating, is this tension between Hamilton's fascination with youth sexuality, you know, the idea of the idealized virgin or the nymph figure that we see throughout his art, and the far more complex depictions of female sexuality and desire and shame and guilt and revulsion that we get throughout Catherine Briar's cinema. So Catherine Briar is credited as a co-writer on this film. I believe her sister Marie-Hélène also worked on the script although she wasn't credited for that. So it's worth pointing out that Briar had already directed a film the year previous to this. I won't attempt to butcher the French title but the English translation of that title was A Real Young Girl which was shot in 1976 and for a whole host of reasons that I'm not going to get into just yet, was effectively shelved until 1999, when it finally got a release, largely on the back of the critical and commercial success of Briar's film Romance, which came out that same year. And there are some unmistakable similarities between Briar's earlier film and this one. They both revolve around a teenage girl who is on break from a boarding school and... In A Real Young Girl, I think the character is 14 and she's played by a 20 year old in Charlotte Alexandra and again, there's an emphasis on sexual desire on the one hand and repulsion and shame on the other as her character undergoes a kind of sexual awakening and these thwarted attempts at losing her virginity Again, this is something that Briar explores again in her later films 36 Fiat and Amasseur Both of those later films also riff on these very similar themes, issues and ideas So compared to all of Hamilton's later films None of them have this same level of conflict In terms of their depictions of female sexuality They're all far more idealised, innocent, carefree, nostalgic you know, Tonally, Hamilton's later films are far more in line with a lot of his photographic work So I think it's fair to say that Bilitis undoubtedly has the Briar stamp on it even if it never reaches the kinds of extremes that we see within her own filmmaking, especially later on within her career.
0: We'll talk about her more soon, but it's so interesting to think about this in relation to Briar's career. You know, you mentioned romance, and that was such a controversial film too, you know, with these sort of, you know, art versus porn questions. And of course that film famously features uh, unsimulated sex, very, very famously. In fact, I believe it was temporarily banned in Australia because of that and only was released here after intervention from the Pompidou, I believe. I'm going from memory there. These kind of controversies weren't new to her, perhaps, from her connection to to Hamilton alone. You know, attitudes shifted towards his work throughout, you know, from the 70s to the 80s, which, again, we'll talk about more shortly. But he's, I mean, it's, it's interesting to watch you know, to look at his early career, because he's not, I think with a lot of artists, it's like, you know, they, they you know, he's got his first camera when he was five, you know, he was born to do photography, or, you know, he got his first typewriter when he was two months old, and he was gifted from the word go. That's not Hamilton's story at all. He comes from a more sort of a commercially focused narrative, I, I guess is the best way to put it. So I believe that he actually, you know, he was born in the UK, and he moved to France to study architecture, I believe, when he was young, and ended up working at Elle magazine as a graphic designer, I think, when he was around 20 years old. And the particular style that, even at that point, that he was interested in was really strongly influenced by the Impressionists in particular. Um, And that saw him sort of slowly move into art direction, and then from there he moved into commercial photography. So it wasn't like photography was this great passion of his, you know, he sort of went on this journey that saw him arrive at photography. And that look, you know, that, that famous Hamilton blur, that really started to take off in the 60s. You know, that was really sort of defined as his signature in the in the late 60s. And, you know, it wasn't just fashion magazines. You know, he famously was, you know, um, associated with French Vogue magazine and, and photo magazine, places like that. But yeah, then came, you know, the art exhibitions around the world, perfume ads, these books and these films. You know, I mean, he was a big deal. I mean, he was a really, really successful big deal. And this kind of um, soft focus on Je look, I think, Again, going back to that issue of time, it almost, it feels to me, as, it feels so 70s. Like, I know that it's a, it's a throwback for him to this past period, this sort of historical romanticism, you know, the influence of the Impressionists, all of that stuff that he's bringing on board here. But to me, this is so... It's just so 70s, which is why I love it. You know, it's so, so, so 70s because it's, it's hard to look at this without looking at it through the lens of things like Emmanuel and especially Story of O, you know, these kind of films.
1: Yeah, those just Jake films that you just mentioned, Emmanuel and the Story of O, are really two of the key defining texts of this soft focus, soft core films of the 1970s. And Hamilton had actually been approached by the producers of Emmanuel to direct that film initially but he turned them down and that was back in 1973 so his style had clearly been identified as a suitable candidate for this type of, of filmmaking and i think in that context it's helpful to position bilitus in terms of these other european softcore films to show how hamilton's visual style and his themes are so at home within this genre or this subgenre. Of filmmaking and I want to quote again from that Freeze article which nails this comparison between Emmanuel and David Hamilton and the author writes quote it is wrong to assume that erotic images refrain from explicit depictions of sex solely for reasons of censorship softcore is not a softened version of hardcore porn it has its own ideology hardcore films raise the depiction of genital sex to a level of maximum visibility The erotic film, or image, invokes a different ideal, the non-genital contact of androgynous bodies confined to looking and touching. By deliberately excluding the obscene act of penetration, the erotic film creates an idyllic world of sexual purity. In this respect, Jaikens' Emmanuel played a crucial role not only in defining the visual conventions of the genre of erotic film, but also in propagating the philosophy of the sexual idol. The film was a major success and pioneered the screening of softcore feature films within mainstream cinemas. Familiar motifs and techniques are used in the film. Soft focus and backlighting effects, translucent summer dresses, winter gardens, wicker chairs, the colonial style mise-en-scene tops everything off with the thrill of exotic luxury. Now you can already see in that description there of the style of Emmanuel, how closely that is tied to... The signature style that we've discussed in terms of David Hamilton's photographic work and also his his films including this one and it's important to remember that this was a style that he'd been cultivating for quite some time by this stage and it's worth I think giving some background on Hamilton's photographic work here for context and again this is from that freeze article where the author writes Hamilton's fame is closely tied to the German magazine Twin originally launched in 1959, which, together with the realities, in France, was the first to publish his images. When you flick through issues from the early 1960s, the sense of a new era dawning and the rise of the beatnik generation is overwhelming. The pages are filled with reports about jazz, Albert Camus, Claudia Cardinale and fast cars. Twen is radiant with the electrifying promise of sexual liberation from the constraints of the restrictive morals of post-war Germany. The early magazine covers combined images of girls' faces, and later their bodies too, with headlines that resembled outright political slogans. Twen campaigned for the acceptance of sex before marriage, the use of contraceptives, the tolerance of abortion, and the decriminalisation of homosexuality. Even Adorno contributed an ardent manifesto to this campaign. One of Hamilton's first projects for Twen was a fashion spread in May 1968, about the new quote-unquote granny look. Long, nostalgic dresses worn by young models in a dreamy park. In August of 1969, in a homage to Leonor Feeney, whose paintings were reproduced alongside Hamilton's photographs, he staged a fashion shoot for Dior in a vintage train compartment with lace curtains. Two identical androgynous models have fallen asleep. Large floppy hats cover their eyes, and the contours of their bodies dissolve in a mist of pastel colours. The subtitle reads, A revolution of the witches and fairies who embody sexuality but still have nothing sexual about them. In February 1970, a series of Hamilton's photos were accompanied by lyrics from Leonard Cohen's song, Suzanne. These pictures show a girl in a summer dress dancing through a park with a parasol, a girl reclining in a wicker chair next to a Tiffany lamp, and finally a girl gazing at the reflection of her naked body in an Art Deco mirror. Bright sunlight turns the scenes into nebulous, ethereal visions of blissful purity. The models in Hamilton's images embody an ideal of beauty. A slender and androgynous teenage girl with pronounced cheekbones and an innocent air. This ideal was very much in line with a contemporary image of the Swedish girl, who represented a feminine ideal of natural sexuality from the mid-1960s onwards. From 1969 until it folded in 1970, many twin covers shot by Hamilton depicted such Nordic beauties. End quote. And the reason why I think that context is really important is that it points out that the Hamilton style, the look, the types of subjects, wasn't just some underground. This was very much part of a far more mainstream commercial style at the time you know the article goes on to mention like Dior and Tiffany and so on so all of this was happening in the midst of the countercultural revolutions and the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 1970s and that context that historical and cultural context and political context i think is really important not only just understanding the themes of Hamilton's work but also where his style fits in terms of a wider mainstream audience not just these niche erotic films or images that he's perhaps more renowned for now
0: you're absolutely right and i think that what i mean we've mentioned this throughout but what we can't really underplay is how critically well received these were at the time and that changed as you know that changed from the 70s to the 80s and, and onwards as attitudes towards sex changed and representation changed and this has all been mapped out by many people so again we have that question of time i mean i'm fascinated by this idea of the of the granny look because to me that implies age you know that's grannies are older women but it's this like this kind of yeah this idea of of temporal clashes of of mixing up the old with the new, even just in the the phrase, you know, the, the descriptor, the granny look, which comes up time and time again, comes up almost as often as the, you know, the Hamilton blur, as a defining feature of, of his style, this granny look. But these aren't grannies; these are the opposite of grannies. These are young women where um, menstruation, you know, menarche is is kind of closer to their lived experience than menopause, which is what we associate with grandmothers. So there's really interesting stuff just in a purely formal context going on with time. In Hamilton's work, but as I said, you know, critics loved it in the 70s. They loved it as this film was again was very, very well received. Gene Thornton at the New York Times wrote in 1978 of the way that Hamilton photographed these young women as quote through a shimmering haze of delight, half fatherly, half loverly, as shy, enchanting creatures who live in a world that is several degrees removed from real life. Everything's there, you know. There is this, you know, this this half fatherly, half loverly. That's that's lovely, L-O-V-E-R-L-Y, not lovely. I mean, that's a creepy combination of words in retrospect, especially considering we can't shake off the the slime of uh, Fluffy Flamon's allegations against Hamilton. Half fatherly, half lovely is icky. But yeah, in 1978, that was an objective piece of criticism. And I don't say that to, you know, to give Gene Thornton at the New York Times... A hard time. It's it's more a case of again just marking how time has changed, attitudes have changed. You know, we keep coming back to that that question of time, um, which I think is just so much at the core of this film. I mean, talking more about Hamilton's photography, which is you know, it, it just dominates this film. Even as again, as we said, you know, he's not the the DOP here. It's almost like fanfic in a way, to his own, <laughs> to his still photography. That sounds a little bit dismissive, but it's um, it's a love letter to photographs that are love letters to this sort of forgotten, hazy past. You know, the, the, the Hamilton haze, I think, doesn't just refer to that stylistic or formal quality of that blurring. It's almost this hazy past, this slippery, indistinct, soft view of the world then, that's not the, you know, the vulgar world of today as, as you know, riffing on his later quote in, in relation to those child pornography charges that he contended with in the early 2000s. Perry Hinton writes a really good article. Perry Hinton's work on Hamilton has been um, really useful for us. And Hinton goes into depth about really talking about the cultural milieu that, that Hamilton was really working in. And there's just great descriptions of his work. For Hinton, quote, Hamilton's interiors of chintz filled villas present an Edwardian style decor of antique furniture and Tiffany lamps. The young woman in his photographs do not wear denim jeans, t shirts, hooped earrings, or Nancy Sinatra boots. They dress in white cotton or wear vintage style summer dresses in a stylish French resort connoting Proust's Albertine and her friends. Their clothes echo Albertine's as if plucked from Grandma's closet chest. There we go with the granny, granny core again. and walk casually and freely in the warmth of summer. Indeed, at the time, this clothing style was referred to as the granny look. See, always the granny look. By selecting objects and clothes from the past, Hamilton offers imagery symbolic of escape. In a conceit of the daily light of these girls, they luxuriate in a provincial Shangri-La of an endless summer, living the bourgeois dream of a leisured life in the south of France. The young women gaze dreamily out of windows or into Art Nouveau mirrors, Sometimes they lie on beds with their eyes closed and appear to be sleeping or in the process of dressing. They sit and read or play the piano. Outdoors in printed frocks with large straw hats and ribbons, they gather flowers in idyllic country settings or watch as doves take flight about them. They tended to be tall and willowy, blonde and Scandinavian, with the physique of fashion models, typified by then 21-year-old Swedish Mona Christensen, Hamilton's muse and sometimes partner, who was to appear in many subsequent works. She, of course, plays Melissa in this film. Elsewhere, Hinton writes more of this general look in Hamilton's work, quote, Drawing on the hippie idea of back to nature, this style was a rejection of synthetic materials, heavy makeup and complex hairstyles. Plastic became a term meaning inauthentic and the opposite of natural. Hamilton's models wore their hair loose, appeared to have no makeup and relaxed in white cotton chemise with embroidery detail or dressed in simple print or peasant style dresses made from natural fibres. Presented in nature at the countryside or coast, or waking or sleeping, the nudity or partial nudity of the young woman connoted a natural state, rather than something to be embarrassed about. The natural look represented nature, and buying into it gave the illusion of a more natural lifestyle, like the 19th century arts and crafts movements of William Morris emphasizing the handmaid and the natural offered an escape from the mechanized, multinational mass production of modern life into an imaginary, more authentic world. Hamilton's girls modeled both the fashion and the imagined life. Now, this article is really great and it really nails how this very specific romantic vision, I guess, of Hamilton's at the time that he really was just in full flight in terms of the success of his career and the success of of works such as this. This article sort of maps how that goes out of vogue, how the times changed, but this work didn't change with it. And Hinton writes, quote, as 1970s romanticism was superseded by a diverse interplay of the personal and political in popular photography in the 80s and 90s, his later work conflicted with the changing cultural sensibilities and also led to negative interpretations of his publications. After the early 1980s, his photography disappeared from photo and subsequently his work hardly appeared in photographic magazines, with his photographs viewed as outmoded and criticized for their depictions of girls what is so interesting about this particular article, I think is how Hinton really picks up how the less controversial aspects of Hamilton's photography and his style have actually continued well into the 21st century. they have sort of been de-Hamiltonized, but you know, it, it goes into depth about, uh, you know, more contemporary photographers that have been influenced by Hamilton, but kind of leave the icky stuff to the side. And I think that that's worth noting that, you know, this isn't, a film um, and Hamilton's work more broadly they're not just historical artifacts like you can you don't need to look far to see how this legacy how this style has sort of continued into the present day it's just not as often associated with Hamilton because it's you know his representation of of young women and sexuality hasn't dated that well at all so there's this sort of distancing uh, there's a sort of unacknowledged influence and even if those Influences are conscious, you know, I guess that they were so deep in that 70s imaginary that, you know, that the influence and the photographers and and other artists that were influenced by Hamilton might not realise that they were influenced by Hamilton.
1: You make a really important observation there, and that is this sense of Hamilton's works being somehow out of place, out of touch, out of time. And again, I think that quote that you mentioned earlier about the vulgarity of the current era is really illuminating. And even though you can sense in his work a 70s-ness about them, his films and his photographs feel like they've been displaced from the turmoils of the contemporary era in which they were produced. And you can see that in the locations that Hamilton repeatedly uses in his work, like the beach, the bourgeois country estate, the forest, the woods, the fields. There's this obsessive retreat to nature within his work, almost as in antidote to the idea of this corrupted modern industrial world. It's almost Heideggerian in that regard and that's a key feature of his photographic work as much as it is of his films. A number of his photo publications were tie-ins to his films and they certainly outnumber the films substantially but if you take a look at something like A Place in the Sun which is one of his photographic works that he published in the mid-1990s. He writes in the introduction to that, quote, life ought to be a quest to find one's place in the sun. To spend a day on some tropical beach is for many people their ultimate heaven, an opportunity to relax, be free, and revel in total hedonism. But that special place we search for can be completely imaginary, somewhere that we keep inside our head to retreat to when the world is cold and hostile. It is a personal place that can often only be seen in the mind's eye. End quote and the locations that he shoots these nude photographs for in that publication all have that same idyllic aspect to them you know Tahiti, Hawaii, Guam, Saint-Tropez, Phuket, Gabon, Saint Lucia, the Maldives and you know on and on we go and really that's the same for his film locations too Tender Cousins the f- film he made after Laura takes place on a country estate in 1939. So there's a literal retreat back in time, as well as a retreat from the sort of the urban centers within his work. One of his final films, First Desires, takes place on a Mediterranean island, which a trio of women, young women, get shipwrecked on, and a summer in Saint-Tropez, which doesn't really have any narrative to speak of whatsoever. There's almost no dialogue. It just features seven young women all living together in a seaside cottage, and the film follows them as they wake up, they shower, they picnic, they lounge around, they go skinny dipping, they ride horses, they pick flowers, they go skinny dipping again, they have pillow fights, and then somewhat bizarrely, it all ends with one of the young women getting married off in like a pagan ceremony, and then leaving the island by boat with this man who's seemingly appeared out of nowhere towards the end of the film. And again, this freeze article really nails the significance of the idol setting I-D-Y-L-L, to Hamilton's work, and the author writes, quote, There is a certain historical truth in the frozen idols of the soft focus imagery. They represent an artificial heaven conserved and purified by the sexual utopia of the 1960s. As seamless representations of harmony, they belied the growing depression of the 1970s, in the aftermath of the Vietnam War and the Charles Manson murders erotic fantasies that offered a retreat from the reality of dropout culture in which the promise of free love was finally drowned in the self-induced impotence of heroin addiction. That's a really remarkable quote that nails this key point that Hamilton's images, his films, were representations of a fantasy world that didn't exist anymore. Just as this article suggests, they represented this conscious retreat from contemporary social ills or traumas represented by things like Vietnam or the Manson murders or heroin addiction to this imagined utopia of the natural world.
0: Yeah, look, there's a lot there to unpack just in terms of this word that you kept repeating, this concept of retreat. And it's almost a haunted word when we look back at Hamilton, both personally and professionally. You know, this was a man who really retreated after that big heyday, especially, you know, when... This series of controversies started becoming synonymous with his name. Sort of, you, know, you know, going into the '80s when this um, art versus porn question really came to the forefront of discourse about his work. But also that this idea of retreating into this vague, idealized past is—it permeates his work, and it's in bilitus, It's in the very name of the film. So, not just in terms of how it relates to the character. in relation to where that name comes from and what that you know the kind of cultural baggage associated with the very name of this film so with bilitus itself so obviously the the main character is the name of the film there's a whole this is a whole thing so you know grab grab yourself a glass of wine sit down this is a this is a story so at the time that this film was released it was by many critics considered to be an adaptation and it's still talked about in that sense Jeff Brown in the Monthly Film Bulletin wrote in 1978, Bilitus, a first film by the still photographer David Hamilton, seems more suited to the coffee table than the cinema screen. Its succession of delicately coloured, slowly paced scenes are dangerously lacking in depth and energy. The visual style closely follows Hamilton's usual work, with beautiful young women, including Hamilton's most famous model, Mona Christensen, preening themselves in an atmosphere thick with erotic languor. Uh, Brown continues, quote, What saves the film from being merely feverent kitsch is the strength of the original material. The script is derived from Pierre-Louise's poem sequence updated from ancient Greece to modern Provence and Louise's mood of erotic reverie and adolescent yearning survives to an unexpected degree. The wide-eyed performance of Patricia Darbonville helps considerably here. But the film's fragile romantic sensibility ultimately founders in the welter of American dubbing Francis Lee." music and the debilitating, refined images. So yes, a less than hugely praiseful contemporary review of this film. But what I I read that out because I think that that emphasis there on Pierre-Louise's works is really important. This is a strange story. If you're not familiar with this story, it's a it's a banger. So the reference to Bilitis is it's historically kind of complex to unpack. So on the surface, that reference is to the 1894 uh, literary Fraud, which is kind of widely what it's understood as now. Um, it's a book of poems published in Paris that year and ostensibly tra- translated by this guy called Pierre Louise. So he claimed in his quote unquote translation, I'm doing a lot of quote unquote, I'm getting sore fingers from so many air quotes here. Pierre Louise claimed in the book that Biletus was a contemporary of the great ancient Greek poet Sappho, who, of course, is, you know, a pretty big deal in uh, lesbian cultural history. So while only fragments of Sappho's works remain, Louise basically claimed that he had translated the entirety of this so-called figure of Bilitus's work, that that while Sappho's work hadn't survived, uh, Bilitis's had, and that Bilitis was a contemporary, uh, a courtesan of, of Sappho. And there were 143 poems in total, and they were presented by Louise as his translation of what, he presented as as ostensibly autobiographical poems by by bilitus louise even said that you know they were discovered in a in a tomb in cyprus they were certainly authentic he makes that very clear and this was taken as a given for a very very long time now this is from the introduction of the pierre louise book he's he writes bilitus new sappho and she speaks of her using the sappho uh, the name she held in lesbos this admirable woman without a doubt taught the young pamphlet the art of signing rhythmic phrases and of preserving for posterity the memory of those most dear. Unfortunately, Biletus left us very few details about this figure, about whom so little is known today, and it is regrettable, since even the slightest word would have been precious, regarding the great inspirer. The great inspirer here being, of course, Sappho, who this made-up Biletus was apparently a courtesan of. So yes, there's a lot going on here, and it, it it gets even more complex. It's hard not to draw parallels, I think, between this story you know this supposedly historical story and of I queer women I'm being thro- not just I'm told but ultimately fabricated by this tall. male author a long 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 time later in relation to I Hamilton what? and and what he's doing here you know and then we get into this interesting terrain where you know we've got a, a a man telling the story of this this young woman's sort of sexual awakening Um, And that that becomes more complicated when we look at the involvement of Catherine Briard, you know, so it's it's, it's complicated stuff. But it's really when we go back to Songs of Bilitis, I mean, it's so hard to really give a clear picture of just how influential this book was. I mean, it was it just had a huge cult presence, especially in the during the growth of lesbian civil rights in the United States in particular and that coincided of course with second wave feminism and it just wasn't available really widely in an english translation until the 70s so if you're wondering why was this you know book from 1894 suddenly of interest in the 1970s that was really the first time that that a lot of people uh, could access it in, in the english language it was considered hot stuff is is you know it was sort of very contemporary and this very sort of rare forbidden cult document that was suddenly very available and clearly this film is tapping into that that cult legacy But it gets even more complicated because there's a group called Daughters of Bilitis who were formed in 1955 in San Francisco by two women called Phyllis Leon and Del Martin, or Phyllis Lyon, actually. I don't need to pronounce her name with a French accent. I don't need to butcher it with my broad Australian accent. And the Daughters of Bilitis were a really, really, really key group in the United States and that that lesbian civil rights movement. And yet, named themselves after the book not quite aware that it was a fraud because you know not not a lot of people were aware of that so they they can be forgiven and they had jokingly said that um they named themselves that because in they ever got hassled by the cops they could just say that they were a poetry group now when this question of authorship did come to the fore um, another key member of the group said that you know in retrospect they probably named themselves something like Sappho's sister's because they could still go with that poetry defence. I oh, don't know. No, we're, we're a poetry group. Like we're, we're really into we're into poetry. There's just an unbelievable article if you can chase it down from the New York Times from 1971, written by a woman called Judy Chemisrud uh, about the daughters of Sappho. And it's it's so interesting to me to think of that legacy. So if we think of the legacy of this 1894 book of poems that you know were written by this French dude, and not written by somebody who knew Sappho, but people believed that they were that we have these two very, very different legacies. You know, we have the the Hamilton film, you know, clearly inspired, oh named after, you know, it's a love letter to that book. And then on the other hand, we have Daughters of Bilitis, which is doing something very, very, very different with lesbianism and, and queer women. And this, this article is absolutely unbelievable because a lot of stuff I think, I certainly for myself, I have to say that I've taken for granted about this discourse this is like a little time machine, this article. It just takes you back to this certain place at a certain time and makes you realise what the attitudes to same-sex relationships between women were at this particular moment. So, yeah, this is, this is in America and not France. And this is, I think, six, seven years before this film came out. But I think that obviously it's closer to the ideas perhaps that sort are of dominating this film than, than how we might see it again from a contemporary perspective. So, again, we're dealing with that time thing. All right, so I'm going to read a little bit from this because it's unbelievable. Quote, What is a lesbian? Even a lot of lesbians don't know for sure. A lesbian is a woman who has slept with men and still prefers women, said a bleach blonde DOB, Daughters of Biletus, member at the Center's Opening uh, in New York. Another said that a woman was a lesbian merely if she preferred the company of women to that of men. According to a study on female homosexuality conducted in 1967, by the Society of Medical Psychoanalysts, a lesbian is, quote, any adult female who is having repetitive, overt homosexual activity. This is the definition the mental health profession seems to prefer. Now, Kenneth Rudd continues, quote, although the medical profession still largely maintains the sick theory regarding homosexuality, hold on to your bonnet, people, this is crazy stuff. It is hard to find a lesbian who considers herself sick. No shit. But is likely to tell you about her three nervous breakdowns, or that she can't get through the day without tranquilizers, or that seven different psychiatrists haven't been able to help her. DOB, Daughters of Bilitis, has a referral service that recommends psychiatrists or psychologists, most of them women who poo-poo the sick theory. Dr. Harvey E. K., a Manhattan psychiatrist who headed the Society of Medical Psychoanalyst Studies that defined lesbianism in 1967, and who is one of the few acknowledged experts on lesbianism, refuses to use the word sick. When discussing women homosexuals, he prefers to call them abnormal. How's that for a banger? How's that last line for a banger? So this is 1971. I mean, yeah, we're not great. I think, um, in, in broad cultural and social terms, when it comes to, you know, you know, upholding the the fundamental basic human rights of our of our queer friends and family. But holy shit, like <laughs> that quote is something just from out of this world. I nearly dropped the teapot when I read that. It's like, no, no, they're not sick. They're abnormal. So, I mean, I'm going to make a call that perhaps in France, you know, I mean, this is unsubstantiated, but perhaps things were a little more, uh, there was a different attitude to same-sex relations. I don't know. But it's really hard to talk about Bilitis and not talk about that, that journey towards daughters of Bilitis. But that's the stuff that the daughters of Bilitis in the 70s were dealing with. And that was business as usual to them. I mean, there's a great story where they couldn't get a phone line on because, you know, straight up homophobia. They they just couldn't get a phone connected. And one of the women from the New York branch said, well, you know, we're a Jewish group. This is anti-Semitism. And that's the only way they got the phone connected.
1: I believe there's another gay and lesbian rights organisation that's also named after Bilitis, the Bilitis Resource Centre Foundation, which is based in Bulgaria. So yes, this name clearly caught on in spite of, as you've mentioned, this literary fraud. But just in terms of the depiction of lesbian desire and female sexuality that we see in this film, I think Biletus is doing something a little different to the typical softcore or soft focus feature. The scenes, such as the one with Billatus and Melissa, or the earlier one with her school friend, there's a genuine seeming affection between the women within those encounters that goes beyond the type of, I'm using my quotation fingers here, for show lesbian interactions, or that just for titillation spectacle that we often get in softcore, same-sex scenes. You know, this isn't the girls cavorting in showers, skinny dipping and pillow fighting type lesbian activities that we see in Hamilton's other work. This film doesn't end with the girl going off with the boy in the end. And I think a lot of that has to do with the ways that heterosexual interactions within this film are characterised by this real brutish and violent sensibility. There's a complete lack of warmth, a lack of affection in most of those encounters. So this contrast in sexuality is really marked and that gets back to what I was saying at the beginning of the commentary in terms of the particular tensions and conflicts going on within this film. There's a deeply anxious gaze towards acts of heterosexual penetration in this film and I can't help but see how a number of these anxieties are connected to the influence of Catherine Briard and her preoccupations with female sexuality. And Briar's later career I think is really illuminating in this context in terms of showing almost in retrospect her imprint upon this film. I'm not sure how well you remember Amar or Fat Girl as it was retitled in English, which came out in 2001. But the film revolves basically around two teenage sisters on holiday at a French seaside retreat and their discussions about losing one's virginity. The older sister wants to keep her virginity until she's married. She's looking for the the one, the right one. And her younger sister is of the mind that It doesn't matter who she loses it with, she wants to be rid of this burden and as soon as possible, effectively. And there's one particular scene in that film where the older sister, who's become romantically involved with this other guy who she's met on the trip, and he effectively coerces her into having anal sex because, as he sort of tells her, that way she'll still be a virgin. And this all takes place in the bedroom while the younger sister is supposedly sleeping. But of course, she isn't and she's very much aware of what is going on in this interaction that's happening behind her. And Briar keeps the camera mostly on the younger sister throughout that interaction. So we're connecting with her audible experience of this brutish sexual encounter. And that scene is really remarkably similar to the one we have in Bilitis, where Bilitis witnesses the scene of Melissa being anally raped by Pierre. So this violent heterosexuality is something very close to Briar's work. Violence and sexuality and masochism and fantasy and shame and guilt. These are all things that she keeps returning to within her work. And there's a really excellent piece on Briar's cinema that was written by Alice hallett Bryan. And what struck me reading this piece was just how many of her observations about Briar's later works seemed equally applicable to Bilitus. And she writes, quote, throughout her career, Briar has explored female sexuality, often combining provocative hardcore imagery with philosophical treaties on sex and subjectivity. Her films detail the journey from self-estrangement to independence that her female protagonists embark on, whilst simultaneously challenging the social and cinematic construction of femininity. As Briar explains, quote, women need to reintegrate the idea that sexuality, the sexual act, cannot be what we are shown so complacently. The words used to describe women's sexuality, the censorship and shame that society inflicts on women, create a very schizophrenic condition. As a filmmaker, I realize that images are nothing if they are only images. Haylet brian goes on. Briar is not attempting to depict a purely new form of female sexuality, but one that is able to break free from its traditional constraints through transgression. Her female protagonists embody the patriarchal condemnation of woman to such an extent that they rupture it, and by doing so, clear a ground for woman as subject. Briar claims that she makes films because she wants to describe female shame, but when considering her characters in this process of rupture, they can be seen as revealing the mechanisms of the shame, and through doing so, overcome it. Throughout these narratives Briar's characters are able to transition from self-estrangement and shame to a transgressive and polymorphous sexuality that rejects the phallic economy, End quote. Now, Hallett Bryan is referring there to Amasur and to 36 Fiat, but those observations could equally apply to Billitus, especially that line about that rejection of the phallic economy. And Troy Borden really sums this up nicely too. He writes, In Briar's films, teenage heroines also face a double bind that requires them to be remarkably resourceful. On the one hand, they feel the urge to lose their virginity in order to access the status of women and thereby free themselves. On the other hand, they must find a way of doing so without being submitted to the disgrace and shame involved by losing their virginity. End quote. And again, That perfectly summarises the dilemma for Biletus within this film. And I think it really raises questions over whether Biletus perhaps gains a sense of agency or independence by rejecting heterosexuality, or stepping back from that phallic economy, either by choice or just by circumstance, at the end of this film.
0: It's by regression, almost. By a conscious regression, by a conscious retreat. You know, this is the word, again, that we keep coming back to. It's so fascinating. I mean, and again, you know, I have to keep saying, you know, it's hard to look at this film and talk about David Hamilton without knowing what we do know has been alleged against him, which, which makes it talking about a film in relation to him as the sole author. You know, if we want to go down that authorship line, it, it makes it a tricky, it makes it a bumpy ride. But when you remember that film is a collaborative thing, you know, as much as the Hamilton gaze dominates this, as much as it was, you know, a David Hamilton film, you know, like a moving image version of those coffee table books that sold crazy best selling books. When you start looking at the involvement of these other people, and it's, I mean, brie is, you know, the big name I think today attached to this film. Um, you know, I keep, you know, I was banging on about Patty D'Arbonville earlier in the film, but I don't think she's anywhere as well known as as Brouillet. You know, she's the one whose whose name I think is like the big wow. That's that's the big wow name today for most people. And it's not to diminish, I mean, it's a David Hamilton film, he was the director, and, and again, the Hamilton Hayes is there. But to start looking at these other people who were involved, you know, Bernard Daliancourt I've, I've mentioned previously, the DOP, really interesting guy. I mean, he, he was a DOP for Valerian Borovchik on some of his best films, and, and I think all of his films are amazing. But he shot Immoral Tales, he shot The Beast, he shot La and then he went after Bilitis in 1979, he did uh, *Borovchik's Immoral Women objectively just some of the most beautifully shot films in the nineteen seventies in European cinema. Like I mean I'm, I'm i love Borov Chick. But it's so interesting to think of, of Dalian Court and his work more broadly in relation to this film. Uh, he would go on like a lot of people who work behind the scenes in this film, would work again with Hamilton. He he was DOP on Laura, he was DOP on Tender Cousins in nineteen eighty. So it's an interesting thing, you know, we have that use of still images. And Dalian and is clearly replicating in the moving image that distinctive Hamilton style. But you know what I mean? These questions of of authorship and and the gaze, you know, it all becomes a little bit slippery. I I find that really fascinating.
1: There are some really important connections here. I mean, this gets back to Hamilton not being an outlier. He's not in isolation doing this thing. This is very much part of a, a broader trend. I mean, you, you mentioned La Marge, a film that stars both Sylvia Crystal, you know, the leading Emmanuel, and also Joe D'Alessandro of, you know, Warhol, Morrissey, Flesh, Trash, Heat, you name it. These are really key figures in these films of the late 60s and the, the 1970s. In fact, Sylvia Crystal says that La Marge, I think she said this in her biography that it's her favourite of all her films. But again, just coming back to the Daughters of Bilitis that you talked about earlier, Dalian Corps shot another Pierre Lois adaptation for Robert Fust in 1982, Aphrodite, Robert Fust from the abominable Dr. Fibes fame. Jeez, that's hard to say. So yeah, another connection where, yeah, this clearly was circling around the cultural zeitgeist at the time. These, these throwbacks to, as you've just outlined, these imagined historical texts. Like we get in other contexts, like the story of Oh, Lady Chatterley's Lover, these were the fodder for a number of the adaptations, erotic adaptations that were going on at the time.
0: And look, I mean, you know, like you indicated, I mean, this was Hamilton's first feature film, but he was already himself an established name. Some of the people that he worked with here, you know, not just Dalian but behind the scenes, you know, some of these other people. I mean, one of the editors, uh, Michelle Valio, he also worked on the Beast, the Chick film. But Henry Culpie was one of the main editors for this film, and that's a big name. I mean, this is the guy that cut, he's like Euro art cinema royalty. He cut Hiroshima Mon he cut Last Year at Marion Bad, both with his collaborator Jasmine Chasney. I mean, he did a lot of films. I mean, they're not small films. You know, this is not an obscure underground production by any stretch. I mean, it was literally edited by the same guy that cut Last Year at Marion Bad and Hiroshima Mon uh, the production designer, uh, Eric Simon, he he worked uh, numerous times with uh, Jacques Rivette. He did Duel and uh, Norahua. He did The Devil for Broussomme, which I think was released the same year as Bilitis. I would have to double check with that. And he also came back. You know, he was another one of these these people that came back and worked with Hamilton again. Uh, again, on uh, in his case, on Laura. So these weren't, you know, it's not like this was like an underground rookie film.
1: Yeah, Eric Simon was also worked on the art department for Polanski's The Tenant, like literally the year before this in 1976. So yeah, this is not your amateur underground crew working on these films.
0: We should give a quick shout out actually to Francis Leigh who did the soundtrack. I believe that it actually made the the charts here, the soundtrack to this film. I, I have it on my shelf just behind me where I'm recording. I think it was my parents' copy. But yeah, I think Australia was the only place or certainly one of the only places where it actually made the top 100. And he, this was hardly new terrain for him. He'd done the score for Emmanuel 2. He did great stuff across the board. But this same year, I mean, amongst other things, he did the score for one of my favorite Catherine Deneuve films, uh, a kind of French giallo film, I guess, called The Forbidden Room by Dina Risi. It's an amazing soundtrack, amazing film. You should check it out if that's your thing.
1: Just some other very quick shout-outs before we get on to our leading lady. In terms of the actors who Hamilton worked with in this film, both Mathieu Carrier, who plays the character of Nicias, and Bernard Girardot, who plays the character of Lucas, they both went on to have quite extensive careers in their own right. Carrière worked mainly in Germany. I think he has something like 200 screen credits to his name. Girardot worked as a film director as well as an actor, so front and behind the camera. And Hamilton's last film featured both Emmanuel Baer, who is effectively French cinema royalty, and Patrick Bacow of The Pretender and Carnivale fame, those television series. So these actors may not have been household names at the time that they appeared in Hamilton's films, but certainly a number of actors who appeared within his films went on to have quite prolific careers in their own right.
0: And I think that's where Patti D'Arbonville comes in as a really interesting figure at the time that this film was made and released, I love her, and as I said, you know, from the very outset of this commentary, I, I consider this a Patty Davenport film. I think that she just steals the show. I don't think it would be watchable without her. Like I, I, I struggle to think of somebody else who could do this role and make it such. You know intriguing viewing from a contemporary perspective especially considering we know what we know about david hamilton in retrospect what has been alleged she's incredible i mean like i said you know that i mean i find it funny that she plays a character that's virtually 10 years younger than she's in real life that she's actually only a year there's only a year between her and her supposedly adult lover i mean there's a lot there going on to unpack but she was not in she wasn't discovered for this film by any stretch. I mean, she was married the year that this film came out. She was married to a guy called Roger Miramont, who's an actor in his own right. He pops up in Chabrol's The Blood of Others, the Simone de Beauvoir adaptation with Jodie Foster, I think, and Sam Neill, going from memory there. So he was like an experienced actor. She was married to this guy. She's a quintessential New Yorker. She's like this young... American girl who's probably famous, I guess, in the mainstream now, if she's, you know, if people still know her, I hope that they do. Primarily for the men that she was involved in. So she was Don Johnson's partner for many years in between his two famous marriages to Melanie Griffiths, who he first hooked up with, I think, when she was 14 or 15 years old. Yikes, inverted commas, yikes. And of course, she was the inspiration for Cat Stevens song Lady Darvinville and another song called Wild World in 1970. So she was Cat Stevens, uh, I've got to hate the phrase, but she was Cat Stevens' muse. Yeah, yeah, so Lady D'Arbonville is about is about our bilitus. So the legend holds, right? So you you mentioned Joe Delessandro, we all roads lead back to Warhol. Legend holds that when she was 13, Warhol discovered her at a nightclub where he was DJing, and then cast her when she was about 16 in Paul Morrissey's Flesh, in which she plays the the lover of Joe Delessandro's character's girlfriend. And then she pops up a couple of years later in uh, L'Amour, the Morrissey Warhol film, which stars, amongst others, a young Karl Lagerfeld, why not? This was a period where she was just living the international jet set life. You know, she was sort of darting between London, Paris and New York. She was modeling. After Bilitis, there was a real shift towards mainstream American fare. She did a lot of television, but, you know, she kept working in film. And she's got great movies on her dance card. You know, she did a lot of cool stuff in that later period as well, you know, as, as, as this sort of really interesting earlier period. Um, she pops up in Martha Coolidge's Real Genius in the mid-80s with Val Kilmer, Penelope Spearious's Boys Next Door, which is such a great film. She's in The Fan, the De Niro-Wesley Snipes film. God, the obvious one for, you know, for people who aren't quite placing her. She played Lorraine. She was Lorraine Coluzzo, uh, or Lady Shylock, I believe she was called, in The Sopranos. She looks familiar. You've got a Soprano alumni here, and she's fantastic. She's just, I'm besotted. I mean, you can tell, I guess it's pretty obvious (laughs) I'm a pretty big fangirl. I want to talk about two different interviews that she did at different points in her career, because it really, she's just this amazingly interesting woman to me. She did a really good interview. Warhol put her on the cover of Interview Magazine way before Billitus, back in 1973. I think it's the April 1973 issue. And Bob Colacello does this interview with her, and um, he writes, quote, Patty D'Arbonville is a young actress who has appeared in three films to date, Flesh, L'Amour and Masson, which was a critical and commercial success in France. She has been through the pop hippie scene in New York and California, the rock groupie scene in London, the chic ready to wear scene in Paris, always traveling fast and light. Now she's back home in New York waiting. Now this interview, again, this is 73, Bilitis comes out in 77, but it's such a great snapshot of a young woman at a particular moment in her life. It's pretty wild. She says, quote, you know, when I get in front of a camera, I feel really fantastic. The only thing is when I'm in improvised films, I just tend to overact because there's no real direction. There's such freedom in something like Lamour that I just run wild. I mean, at the time I was just foaming at the mouth. I haven't seen the film, just some rushes of me in the bathtub and I was quiet for a change. But I love being in front of the camera. The last time that I was on stage was in the fourth grade. Oh wait, I know, I never did a play but I did this fantastic fashion show for Ossie Clark in London. He made these fantastic clothes for me. Amanda Lear was in it. She's supposed to be a sex change, but I don't believe it. Anyway, she had on this fantastic g-string and was running around pulling up her dress. It was at the Royal Court Theatre, and it was my birthday, and I was really fantastic. That's my only stage experience since fourth grade, but it was pretty good. get the feeling that she's a little manic. She's just gunning it here as such such an insane interview. And um, she's talking about her wild youth here, about dropping out of school when she's 13, 14, starts to go clubbing, and I think from... I mean things just get even wilder from there you know she's telling her life story I think up until the point where it sounds like she met Warhol she says then I decided to go to California and I left with these two girls and my best friend who was pregnant we had spent all the money for her abortion on mescaline and spent three nights in a hotel with some boys freaked out on mescaline we got a thousand dollars for the abortion by going up to this guy in Undine and asking him for it he wrote out a check right there and the next day we went down to his bank on Wall Street and got the money then we drove across the states in a four-cylinder Mustang with my pregnant girlfriend and these two strange girls who turn out to be dykes, we fought all the way there and over whether the window should be open or shut. I ended up hitting my girlfriend and she threatened to stab me, so I left. I went to live with this guy named Stanley, who was some creep who lived right across the street from Harlow's house in Beverly Hills. I stayed for two months and went back to New York and went to Max's a lot with my girlfriend, who had at this time had her baby and gave it away. I made flesh then. I think that's the Warhol film. Then I went back to California, back to New York. Then Bert Stone took me to Paris to do the collections. From there I went to London and stayed at Donald Campbell's house for a couple of months. I loved London, the whole scene there. Then I went to Paris to make this movie called La Maison with Michel Simon. I should have gotten an agent then, but all I wanted to do was get to London and spend all my money, which I did. Then I went to Hollywood to do a movie with Nick Rogue, who had made a name for himself with Performance and Walkabout. It was called Deadly Honeymoon, but it didn't work out. Jim Aubrey didn't like what Nick had done with the script or something, and Nick wouldn't do it anyway but his own. So yes, this is a portrait. I think this is a great snapshot. I mean, I clearly don't, you know, necessarily... I wouldn't use some of the terminology that she uses in there, but it's not 1973, and I'm not the age that she was at 1973. I just love that that is a portrait of the supposed 16-year-old girl in this film years and years and years before she does it. I love the idea that she was almost in a Nick Rogue film. Before she did *Billie*, that blows my mind. *Nightmare Honeymoon* was actually made years later with Elliot Silverstein, and I do mention this—it's—it's it's a horror film. But I mention this specifically because it stars a guy called Dak Rambo. I just wanted to chuck that in there. Don't get him confused with his twin brother. I shit you not, Dirk Rambo. I digress. I digress. Anyway, years later, she does an interview, and she's—you know—like all of us, we're not the people that we were when we were young. <laughs> I was not interviewed by Andy Warhol's interview magazine when I was young, and I'm. Personally, I'm grateful for that. But um, yeah, we get a very different Darwinville all these years later when she does this interview with a guy called Paul Rollins at the website Money Into Light. And she actually speaks in a very different way about Warhol and meeting him. And it's a totally different story than the legend about her being discovered at a nightclub. And she says, I was very interested in chess and I used to go to this cafe across the street from my house called Cafe Figaro after school or sometimes even during school. I would play chess with these older gentlemen who thought it was adorable that I could play the game. One day I was sitting with a man called Steve Winston and these two guys walked in. One of them was really tall with a shock of red hair and the other guy looked like he had a squirrel on his head. They sat down at the table near the window and then the red-headed man approached me. Again I got asked if I wanted to be in a movie. I told him I would have to ask my mum, mainly just to check if he was on the up and up. At this point my mum was a free spirit and I was a bit of a wild child let's say. My mum said, fine, and away we went. I did Flesh with Joe D'Alessandro and my friend Geraldine Smith, which Andy directed. And she's lovely when she talks about Warhol. She says, Andy always kind of reminded me of Steam. He was there, but he was ephemeral. You always got the impression that he was thinking of something else when, while he was speaking with you. The only time I ever saw him truly concentrating on what I was saying was when I was teaching him how to crochet on the set of L'Amour. He got quite good at it, and I also taught him how to knit. He was a highly interesting man with a unique artistic vision. Andy spoke slowly with an indifferent cadence and was vague in his direction on the films I made with him. He was quiet, reserved and very observant. He didn't miss a trick. Andy really enjoyed being the center of attention as long as he thought no one was looking at him. He was a strange individual in that way. I don't think he was very different from the image most people have of him, but he was definitely a deep person. Once you spoke with him and you realized that he had a lot going on, you wouldn't think it, but he did. Andy was painfully shy, in fact, which I think had a lot to do with the way he spoke and presented himself. She continues, quote, During that period, I wanted to work in the acting industry and be taken seriously, so I tried to distance myself from all of that. I never mentioned my connection in any interviews to any colleagues because I thought they would look down on those films as fake or avant-garde. I think it was the right thing to do at that time. I wouldn't have been taken seriously. None of the actors from Andy's films had never gone on to real acting careers. It's interesting now to look back at that period and see that I was involved in such a great period. At the time, it didn't feel that way. I didn't feel like an Andy Warhol superstar, if you will. And I love this. I mean, it's just such a different interview from that earlier one. You know, you kind of get this, It's again, you know, that question of time. You know, it almost sounds like two different women, but it's the same woman, but at different ages. And I think that that's a really fascinating lens to look at, the, you know, at, at Darbynville's performance of Billitus. You know, she's 25, playing a 16-year-old. So there's this strange sort of dislocation or disconnect that, that I find so interesting. And certainly, I mean, I to my knowledge, she hasn't um, spoken about working with Hamilton specifically. If she has, I, I apologize for not coming across that. But this more recent interview, she was asked about this particular film and just doing nudity, doing nude scenes. and both her work with Warhol and and Bilita's come up in that context and she says I've always been in touch with my sexuality and understood the kind of image I presented I don't think he and she's talking about Warhol here ever went too far with it and in terms of Bilita she's asked if it ever negatively affected her later career and again she's very clear in her response she says I've always been able to work and to come back pretty much when I felt like it I got to raise my children because I didn't want them raised by a nanny so yeah Hamilton himself is a pretty complicated figure but I think um, D'Arbonville and her involvement in this film I mean she sounds very clear she sounds very very clear and in control of the kinds of roles that she played certainly around this earlier part of her career you know this is a this is a young woman with a lot of life experience and she really does it I think she does a great I think she does a great job here
1: and she's still acting too mainly on television she popped up in a couple of episodes of Billions the television show Billions and she also played Jessica Biel's mother-in-law on season one of The Sinner, which I think was back in 2017 from memory. So I wouldn't necessarily say that she's working consistently to this day, but she certainly is, or at least still was, getting gigs as recently as a few years ago. But really, this is the film. I think chances are, if people know Patti Darbinville, then they know her as the star of Billitus, because as we've made very clear, this is her film she's the star in what is a very challenging role at this very interesting moment in film history and my god what a fascinating career and life the stories she could tell
0: so Patty D'Arbonville's Patricia D'Arbonville I should show her some respect we don't hang out I can't call her Patty. I don't know her Patricia D'Arbonville's Billitess are we going to stick with that (laughs) are we just going to write no we can't write david hamilton out of history because we need that history right it's part of the story it's the harder part to tell but it's part of it absolutely josh thank you for joining me to talk about what is a pretty difficult film to talk about but i still i still stand by it i still think it's a remarkable film for all of the reasons that we have outlined here
1: agreed thank you for listening